Compass Bible Church to the first ever DBR Spotlight episode. You know, normally Pastor Hayden and I will be here together, but we wanted to launch this out to you this week. And so we have launched out a brand new podcast from the Compass Equip podcast. Now they are now separate podcasts so that we can dive into the Bible deeper together as a church. I'm your host, Pastor Evan. Pastor Hayden will join me uh, next next week at the next episode of the DBR Spotlight. But here at Compass Bible Church, we exist to make disciples of Jesus Christ by reaching people for Christ, teaching people to be like Christ, and training people to serve Christ. And everything that we do here, including all the podcasts now, is to fulfill that mission to reach, teach, and train so that we can make more disciples of Jesus Christ. Well, Compass, we are just so excited to finally, this is something that Pastor Hayden and I have been planning for quite some time that we're glad to now is finally in fruition. And so without further ado, let's jump in and let's finish the gospel of Mark together as a church family this week. So let's open up our Bibles. Here's that journal Bible I've been talking about. I got my Mark journal Bible with my Compass Bible Church you know, bookmark right here for the New Testament, which you can get your own at the Compass Bookstore. You can get your own Old Testament bookmark and your own New Testament bookmark. And this week, we'll be going through Mark chapter 14 all the way to the the end. And before I begin here, I don't have these books out here because I want to look smart. Now, these are the resources that I've been mentioning that we have been mentioning on the podcast. Kind of extra resources. You have this one, Four Portraits, One Jesus. This is a great resource to kind of look through the whole Gospels. The next one is the cradle, the cross, and the crown of this behemoth goes through the entire New Testament, explaining the backgrounds, defending why we know who, what author, which, which author wrote which book, and has a lot of great resources there. Another one that we have mentioned in the past is a commentary on the New Testament use of the Old Testament. It's important for us to know Compass as we read the New Testament to, you know, as we read the New Testament in the DBR spotlight and we're reading the uh, whole Bible this year that we need to understand the New Testament in the light of the Old Testament because the Old Testament is pointing towards the new and the new is all, all of it is pointing to Jesus Christ. And this little book right here is actually uh, the MacArthur Study Bible Notes. We actually have the Study Bible, MacArthur Study Bible and the ESV Study Bible uh, both in the bookstore uh, for you to purchase. And also, I didn't have one a copy. I have my copy here on my Logos software, the Bible Knowledge Commentary is also on my Logos right now, but we sell that book physically uh, for you as a church here at the Compass Bookstore. All right, without more delay, let's dive into the Bible together, beginning in Mark chapter 14. Just as a reminder, we ended Mark 13 with Jesus with the lesson of the fig and um, know about the coming of the Son of Man in the end, he explains the destruction of the temple is going to happen in one season, and then there's going to be a separate season of where the essentially the end times, where the judgment day is going to come. Now he ends the words to say, stay awake with all this, stay awake. 
and then begins in Mark chapter 14, the plot to kill Jesus. So it was about two days before the Passover feast that the, the, the leaders, the religious leaders, the Sadducees and the Pharisees plotted with Judas to get Jesus arrested so that they can kill him. And while that's happening, Mark reveals that this, while this plot was happening, someone else was trying to honor the Lord. When someone was trying to dishonor the Lord, someone was trying to honor the Lord. In Mark 14, 3 through 9, we have the account of Jesus being anointed at Bethany. Now, this is a Mary, one of the several Marys, and you can actually look in your commentary to kind of help you, under, uh, help you out to go, which Mary is this? Oh, excuse me. I'm on the wrong commentary. There's the right commentary. There we go. All right. It's one of the Marys that followed Jesus um, while she she was healed by him. Um, it would have been, excuse me, you know, Mary, the sister of Lazarus, was the one that came here and did this. And so she gave this very um, um, expensive ointment that she knew what Jesus was about to do. He told the disciples at least three times that he was going to die and later be raised from the dead. And she understood that. So she was preparing him for burial. She was weeping. She was wiping his, his feet with her hair. And it says that some of the disciples, now we know in the other accounts of the gospels that it was Judas specifically, but Mark is trying to paint a picture that it was, you know, some of the disciples said, why is she, why is she wasting all this ointment? What is she doing? Because remember, as Mark told earlier, disciples going to be kingdom-minded. They were focused on their kingdom, not Jesus's kingdom. She was focused on Jesus's kingdom and knew what to do. They were not, and they were under, had no idea why she was doing what she doing. She was why she was doing what she was doing, and they scolded her, as it says in verse six. But Jesus said, "Truly, whatever, uh, truly, I say to you, whatever." Uh, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. And this is what we're doing 2,000 years later. Someone who understood what Jesus Christ was going to do to die for their sins and as a payment of uh, their own sin and was going to raise three days later. And then later in, uh, in verse 10 to 11, we see Judas uh, actually doing the act of betrayal by um, having 30 pieces of silver given to him. And then we shift scenes real quickly, like the gospel. Mark, pay attention to that. Things are moving quickly. There's not a lot of names given. We have some random person, really, we know it's Mary, uh, 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 anointing Jesus's feet with water. Well, with ointment, excuse me, oil, expensive perfume. And then we have the Lord's Supper. So Jesus gives, uh, gives instructions to his disciples, and Jesus reveals that one of them will betray them. And they begin to feel sorrowful. And Jesus says the words, it'd be better for that man not to have been born. Knowing that the wrath for betraying the son of the perfect son of God was great. And it is true. It's a heavy, it's a heavy reality that Judas, it would be better for him not to be born in a sense of him facing the wrath of God because of what he's going to do. But reality, that's what we all do. We are more like Judas like than anyone else in the store. We betray Jesus all the time when we sin. And yet that, but we'll learn later in Matthew, what was learned earlier in Matthew's account, you know, Judas did not turn to the redemption to Christ. Instead, he gave up and hung himself. Well, Peter, who betrayed Jesus as well by denying him three times, turned back to Christ. So we continue in verse 22 of Mark 14. 
where Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper with the the Passover, where there's the there's the wine that should have been there, uh, there's the blood of the covenant that he poured out for many. We don't see the bread. We know the bread was there because because of the other gospel accounts, but with the audience in mind, Mark focuses on the blood being poured out as a covenant, and that Jesus says, "I will not drink of this again until when the until the new." Uh, in the kingdom of God. So he's not going to drink this again until the marriage supper of the land when he reigns for a thousand years. So something that Pastor Hayden pointed out to me once, and I, I love it, is that verse 26, verse 14, they sung a hymn and then they went out to the Mount of Olives and then they went to the Garden of Gethsemane. Now this is important because we had the temptations at the beginning. This is essentially another temptation. Now there is no explicit, you know, Satan is not explicitly here, but you can almost say he's implicitly there tempting Jesus once again, not to go through with it because he went to a place called Gethsemane. It's a garden. And this is where you need to focus. This is where the old Testament speaks right into the new because Jesus is in a garden. What else happened in a garden? The great temptation, the fall happened in the garden. Satan uh, tempted Eve and Adam. Adam and Eve were tempted in the garden. So here is the new man, the the new covenant head of humanity going to be tempted in the garden not to do things God's way. You know, he says in verse three, Abba, father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup for me. Yet not I will, but your will be done. What Jesus is showing, he has a human will and divine will, and they're in perfect harmony. Adam and Eve had their own will outside of God, and they chose to rebel against God. Jesus had his human will and was perfectly succinct with his divine will, submitting to the Father's will. It's important that we know that because Jesus is fully human. He's the human that you and I should have been. And his will was perfectly conformed to the father's will. And the father's plan was that the son would come and die for the sins of many. And so that's why it's really important that we understand the humanity of Christ as we understand the, the deity of Christ, because both had to be fully true. He has to be fully God and fully man for, for the substitutionary atonement to actually work. Because we're human, we need a human sacrifice, but we need a perfect human and no human's perfect outside of God. And that's why we need the God man to come to be the perfect man in our behalf. So he uh, then uh, confronts the, the, the disciples for sleeping while he is praying, saying that the, the spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. Kind of showing how a disport, how poor of a disciple they are, and how disciples we need to be fully relying all of our strength, not on ourselves, but unto the Lord. And then we have the betrayal scene in verse forty-three to fifty. In Jesus, the thing we need to focus on is verse forty-nine here. Jesus is being arrested. Judas gives him the kiss. Peter chops off some dude's ear, but Jesus says, "Hey, no, no, no. you, you could have come at me." a while back, but now you're doing this to cover of darkness, but I'm letting you do this because I need, we, I need to let the scriptures be fulfilled. This, the scriptures were to be fulfilled like Isaiah 53, how the lamb was quiet as it was led to the slaughter to cover the sins of many. And so because he's going to fulfill the promises of God, and we see scriptures, that's really God. God said, this is going to happen. So Jesus is submitting to the will of the father, his human will and divine will, his human will was fully compliant and submissive to the God's, the God, the father's will. Now we have this scene in verse 51 that is uh, a bit 
odd. Um, we see a, a young man was following them in, in his linen. I mean, lack of better way to say it is uh, probably his underwear. And this is completely um, completely uh, unique to Mar- Mark's account of the gospel. Now, we don't know who this person was, but they try to seize him and he ran away naked. And we think that it was potentially Mark himself was maybe following. We don't really know who, who this was, but it's normative for an author to in, you know, in, you know, in, in, uh, show where he's at, but not mentioning his own name. John is a great example. John inserts himself. Not really. He reveals himself, excuse me, in the gospel of John without saying, oh, this is me, John. He says, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Well, Mark is like, hey, this is who I was. And here's a dude that I ran away naked from the situation. But without dwelling on that much further, because it's only two verses, let's move on where Jesus is before the council where here is, here's mankind. This is how wretched we are as humans. We try to make everything up that we can do to, to sin. They wanted to kill Jesus so bad. They got false witnesses. And you think they'd be better at making a, a, an accusation against Christ. But God, as the Old Testament says, makes fools of the so-called wise. Evildoers, their plans would be thwarted. And so they got these false you know, people, false testimonies to come. And they couldn't even get their account straight. And they couldn't even find something even wrong with Jesus. So here they are trying to make a, a, a mock trial, and they can't even get their own trial right. This is how pathetic we are as as uh, mankind. And someone actually accuses Jesus, saying in verses um, 58, that they're accusing Jesus, saying, you know, Jesus said that he will destroy the temple and make it, and then three days later, build another not made with hands. It's funny is because, ironically, the temple is actually in the presence. Why do, why do I say that? The temple is a symbol, but also a true spot where God's presence dwells. We see this, you know, man dwelt in the presence of God in in the Garden of Eden. They were cast out of God's presence because of the rebellion and sin. And then the rest of the Bible is how do we get back into the presence of God? Really, it's how does God get us back into his presence? So we see the tabernacle is, is built in the Exodus. And what happens? The presence of God enters the Holy of Holies. And then the temple is built. And we see this in First uh, and Second Kings, well, First Kings in particular, where then the presence of the Lord dwelt in the temple. Funny thing, though, when Ezra and Nehemiah rebuilt the temple in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, what do we notice? That it's built, then what, 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 what doesn't happen? The temple, the presence of the Lord does not dwell in the temple. Actually, we see it revealed in Ezekiel, the presence of the Lord leaving, not only the temple, leaving, not just Jerusalem, leaving Israel itself. But here is actually the presence of God in flesh right here. The Logos, the God manners right here. So ironically, the temple, the presence of God is standing right in front of him. And that's the irony because that's why he can say, I will destroy the temple, not only the physical temple that they were thinking about, but also in three days later, rebuild it because he is the temple of God. He is the presence of God. And then verse 59 of Mark 14, they still couldn't get their story straight. So they finally ask him straight up, are you, in verse 51, are you Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power. Coming with the clouds of heaven. This is clearly a callback to Daniel chapter seven, where Daniel sees a vision of the ancient of days, God, God, the father himself. He also sees God again, but in the form of the man. 
And so here's the God man that's going to come, the Messiah that is revealed in Daniel chapter 7. And that's where they finally get Jesus. The high priest tore his garments in verse 63. And he says, what further witnesses do we need? We have heard it, the blasphemy. What, what is your decision? And they said that he needs to die. And so Jesus, like a lamb led, uh, led to the slaughter, is quiet. Here is the lamb right here that is predicted and revealed in Isaiah 53 right here in Mark 14. So Judas is not the only one that uh, denies Jesus. Also, Peter does. Uh, Peter earlier said, Jesus, I will never, ever, ever betray you. And Jesus is like, actually, you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows. And so we get this account and we see it's a, it's a tragic account. And at the very end, when Peter uh, denies him three times, and the very end of, of chapter 14, G- Peter breaks down and wept. And actually, this is like the last time we even see Peter in the gospel of Mark. And that's actually going to be very important. So the disciples are just abandoning Jesus. Everyone's leaving him. There's a few people that are actually following him, you know, like the women like Mary, and then you'll see soon enough, uh, Joseph of Arimathea, the, the poor, the blind, and the, the people who come to the end of themselves. So then we begin Mark chapter 15. Um, this is the quickest account of the Passion Week that we have in all the Gospels. Pilate in this account is straight up with Jesus. Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus is like, you have said so. Um, but Jesus made no further answer. So Pilate was amazed. Even in the presence of Jesus, Pilate is amazed at who he is. And Pilate is no innocent man, as we see in verses 6 to 15. Pilate, trying to be crafty, trying to do things his way, he's like, this is an innocent guy here. Uh, how about I try to give him a choice that they're going to follow my direction, the, the, the Jewish people that are, are protesting Jesus right now. He's like, I'll, I'll give him Barabbas, some terrorist. That they're clearly, okay, kill Barabbas. You know, Jesus is really not that bad. But again, to reveal the depravity of mankind, to fulfill the scriptures, to really show how evil we are as humans, they, ta- they embrace the terrorist and give in, say, kill this innocent man. And that we see, and then the Jews in Mark 16 to 15 are revealed they are guilty in killing Jesus. The Jewish leaders are guilty in killing Jesus. So verse 15, Pilate, he's trying to wipe, wash his hands. He washes his hands. He's like, right, you, you, to satisfy you, go find, kill Jesus. It still makes him guilty. He, he's still a coward. He should have done the right thing and let Jesus go. But to show his depravity, to, you know, keep his, you know, keep his own life alive, he doesn't do the right thing. Instead, he gives into the crowd. He fears man instead of fearing God. And so he uh, has Jesus flogged and beaten and then crucified. But it's not just the Jews who are guilty of killing Jesus. I think it's important that we see in Mark 16 to 20 that the Gentiles are as guilty of killing Jesus as well. And the soldiers took him away into the palace, into the headquarters, into the battalion. That's a lot of men. And they beat him. They put a crown of thorns on him. They mocked him saying, hail the king of the Jews. And then they led him out to crucify him. All of mankind is guilty. This is what Mark is trying to get at. All of mankind is guilty for killing Jesus. It's all of our sin. It's not the Jews, just the Jewish people. It's all it's not just the Gentiles. It's all of us. All of our sin put Christ on the cross. So then in verse 21, we get the account of the crucifixion it, itself. They have a man named Simon Cyrene. And this is actually unique to Mark right here. It says in verse 21, uh, passerby Simon of Cyrene, who was the coming of coming from a far country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, 
Why, why on earth would Mark do that? It's because they probably knew Alexander Rufus. Mark is probably writing to a Roman audience. Luke is probably writing to a Greek audience. There is a difference. The Romans spoke Latin. The Greeks spoke Greek. And they had very similar culture, but different culture. So Mark is trying to say, hey, you know Alexander, you know Rufus. This was their dad who helped carry Jesus's cross. The point of the Gospels is appealing, well, showing the eyewitness account to say, if you really want to ask, go talk to them. They know their dad. This is, if you want to talk to the dad, find Alexander and Rufus. Find, talk to Simon, who was there, who carried the cross of Christ. And so he, Jesus, you know, he helps carry the cross. They went to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the school. And in the third hour when they crucified him, and they put actually put an inscription, a sign. This is actually the irony of things. They put a sign over Jesus saying, the king of the Jews, which is irony. And actually, this is something that's normative in the Gospels. It's called double meaning. What does that mean? There's one meaning, and then there's a second meaning. And sometimes there's actually a third meaning. Here is an example of double meaning. The, the words king of the Jews, what's the first meaning? Well, this is a mockery. The first meaning is it's to mock Jesus. The Romans were trying to mock Jesus, trying to mock the Jews to say, here is your king. We just killed your savior and king. Congratulations. But the second meaning is the irony that this actually was the king of Israel, the king of the Jews, who is the promised Dave, you know, coming king of David, of same of the, the Davidic covenant. This is the king who is humble, who humbled himself as a servant of God to have the iniquities of mankind placed on himself. And through his wounds, mankind could be healed, as Isaiah 53 says. So they mock him further, saying he can save others, but cannot save himself. Again, double meaning. Of course, he d- looks like he's not he's incapable of doing it, but what he's doing is actually not just saving others, he's saving many. And so the you know let the Christ uh, the king of Israel come down from the cross and we see and believe and eventually he will come down from the cross and actually raise from the dead. And in verse 33 to 41 we have the death of Jesus. Like in Matthew, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, Referring to Psalm 22, which I would encourage you right now, when you read Mark 14, verse 34, stop where you're reading, open to Psalm 22 and read all of it and see how that whole entire Psalm is talking about Jesus Christ. So now let's go back to Mark chapter 14. Like in, in the gospel, Matthew when Jesus uttered a loud cry and, and died, the curtain of the temple is torn in two, showing that the separation between God and man is now done with. And funny enough, who was the first person that recognized that Jesus was God? It wasn't the chosen tribes of Israel. It was a Roman centurion. Really really showing, this is mentioned in also the Gospel of Matthew, but in the Gospel of Mark, you know, imagine writing to Romans, who are on top of the universe right now. And you're showing that they are guilty of the death of Christ. And so this you're like, well, how can we be recipients of a Jewish Messiah? And Mark right here is revealing what God is revealing through Mark. The first person who understood was a Roman. How powerful would that be for a reader who is not a, of the chosen people of Israel, but as a Gentile far off, the one who's oppressing Israel Say, actually, no, the first person that gets it after Jesus dies is a Roman centurion who probably oversaw the death of Christ himself. 
And so not only do the Gentiles look in a positive lens here, also the women, there's all the people who did not abandon Jesus. The disciples were gone, but you see Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of Jesus and several others who were there. And, um, and so then we go to Jesus's burial in verse 42. We see Joseph of Mary, uh, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council. This is a religious leader. This is, we can't take this lightly. The leaders, he was there when they probably, that they condemned Jesus. And he boldly says, I side with this man. This guy is putting a death wish on himself. And this is what it looks like. This is what a disciple of Christ looks like. Doing anything, not fearing man, but fearing God, loving God. So he you know, puts his life at risk and says, I will take the body. And he even says he took courage in verse 43, went to Pilate, ruined his name. But he said, no, no, no. I love Jesus more than my reputation. I love Jesus more than my, my name. I love Jesus than anything. I want to put his body in my tomb. And he even he's respected even by Pilate. And he, Pilate was surprised to hear that. So he you know, wanted to make sure that he, he was dead. So he made sure that Jesus was dead. And they rolled the stone at the entrance of the tomb. Now, this is where it gets cool. Mark 16. Now, when the Sabbath passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Jesus, Mary, mother, James, excuse me, um, brought some spices so they can anoint him. And this is the first day of the week. This is important. The first day of the week. Essentially, what Mark is saying, this is a new day. This is a new creation day. Why? Because Jesus is the new Adam, the new Adam, the new man. So when God created man, that was the beginning. But now here's a new Adam who's going to bring in his people to his kingdom. And so this is kind of fun, you know, words that just, it looks just plain, but these are important words. So when they come to the entrance of the tomb, it's, it's empty. It's, it's, uh, the stone is rolled back. They run into a angel and they're kind of freaking out. The angel says, don't be alarmed. You see Jesus. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where he's laid him. Look, it's, it's gone, but go tells the disciples and Peter, because remember how depressed Peter is right now. He betrayed Jesus. Uh, that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. He said, we will meet in Galilee. We actually see this in Matthew's account. And they went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment has seized them. And they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. That's how Mark ends. Now, before we get on to what, wait, what, hold up. No, that's how Mark ends. And that's important because the way the gospel Mark ends is something amazing happened. The promise that Jesus said three times earlier, like we talked about, it's important to know, well, where's the resurrection? The resurrection had to happen. No, the resurrection here, the angel said that Jesus was alive. So that's important for all the gospels to, to mention and to confirm the resurrection. And Jesus even mentioned how he's going to be raised three days later, three different times. And so, but why does Mark end this way? Because that is the human reaction. This is how we should react. This is how we should react to the, you know, the, you know, the risen Jesus. Think back with me halfway into Mark, the transfiguration, when Jesus, or sorry, when Peter sees Jesus unveiled, what did he do? He didn't know what to do. He was in awe. When he saw the true power of God, he didn't know what to do. He didn't know what to say. He even mentions that. Peter didn't even know what to say. He's like, hey, we can make some tents for everyone because he was in so much fear when he saw the power of God. So these, these women, 
they saw, like Peter, the power of God. That's the parallel right there. You see, Peter seeing the power of God. You see the woman, uh, the woman see the power of God. And both of them had the same reaction, complete and utter fear, but also joy. Now it says they didn't tell anyone. Well, obviously that's not true. That's why Mark has his account. So if the skeptic, uh, skeptic might say, well, see right there, they didn't tell the disciples. So the rest of the accounts are false. Well, no, we actually have the account of Mark, who most likely was a disciple of Peter. So we knew what the lady said because eventually they said it. And so that argument, it, it falls short to say the woman didn't say anything. It's a terrible ending. You know, you got to either include the rest or you got to reject the gospel of Mark. No, we got in th- we have the information of Mark itself right here. So the woman did eventually talk in the you know, gospel of Mark, the gospel, so gospel of Matthew, Luke, and John confirmed that the woman did do what Jesus said and found the disciples and told them. But Mark's point is, is this, that an ur- a fear and urgency needs to be the response of the gospel. When we hear the gospel, the bad news, that our sin put Christ on the cross, that our sin killed Jesus, but yet Jesus is more powerful than sin. We, unfortunately, we take sin way too lightly. What do I mean by that is we kind of dance around the consequences of our sin. We think, oh, we, we sin, but someone's going to bail us out. We lost money, but the government's going to help. We, I sin, but someone's going to forgive me. No, the, the power of sin is, is great. Sin is more powerful than you and me. We, there is no hope for you and I in the fight against sin and, and death. We will stay dead. But when someone defeats that power, you're going to go, whoa. You know, right now, the United States of America, we are the strongest nation in the world. But if another nation comes out and has a nuclear arsenal and an army more sophisticated and larger than ours, what will our reaction be? Whoa, this is terrifying. But here is the promised Messiah displaying his great power that death is finally defeated. Sin is paid for. The reaction of the women is how we need to react. To go, well, my sins are taken care of by a very powerful God. And I need to go forth and proclaim this good news to all. Now, let me address, though, the end of Mark 16. So verse 8 is the end of the book. Now, verses 9 to verses 20 is most likely an addition. And then you'll see this actually in all the commentaries, the Bible Knowledge Commentary, your study Bibles, in all these books, they're going to mention is that this is an addition. Actually, if you look right here on, in, all your, in all your Bibles, it should be in your Bible, it says some of the earliest manuscripts do not include Mark 16 to 920. Now, this is really important because remember the journey that we took? The disciples, they're kind of, lack of a better term, lame. We don't know a lot of names. I mean, we had Mary Magdalene and Mary Mother Jesus. Um, we don't have, there's a lot of details. It's very quick paced. Um, but here all of a sudden it slows down a lot. And all of a sudden we have detail. Like, well, for example, we have Mary Magdalene, you know, the person who had seven demons cast out. Well, that doesn't sound very Markian at all. Um, she told what was then, you know, mourn and wept, but then, um, you know, the, sorry, she went and told the disciples who mourned and wept, but then they heard that he was alive. They could not believe it, which is normal. It, it matches the other gospel counts. 
Now, after these things in verse 12 and 13, um, he appeared to an, an, in another form to two of them while they were walking to the country. This is makes sense. This is what the gospel Luke mentions. And, you know, they went back and told the rest, but they didn't believe them. You know, this refers to maybe what happened in Luke, um, in Luke 24 specifically. After he appeared to the 11, uh, the 11 themselves, they were reclining at table and he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart because they had not believed uh, those who saw him after he had risen. Now, this is completely unique. The other accounts don't really mention that. He, they mention him, that they meet him elsewhere. They're hidden in a room. And then they appear to him. He meets on the road, okay, that matches earlier. But this doesn't seem to match the other gospel accounts. And then he says, And go in all the world to proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, and whoever does not believe will be condemned. Well, that matches John's language. That, that matches Matthew's language. But baptize and be saved, that seems a bit odd. Uh, but matches you know, Acts a little bit. You repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins, Acts chapter 2. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name, they'll cast out demons, speak in new tongues, and pick up serpents with their hands. If they drink of deadly poisons, they'll not hurt them. And they will lay hands on, their, on the sick, and they will recover. Now, those things did happen in the, in the, the Acts and the mention of the Gospels. Like the book of Acts, they spoke in you know, languages, not really new languages, but new to them. It was actual real languages. You know, they did do many signs because it was affirming the message that they were proclaiming the disciples were able to do miracles because God was trying to authenticate their message and they would pick up serpents with their hands and not die. And that's kind of like how Paul in the book of Acts got bit by a poison snake and didn't die and didn't you know, drink deadly poisons. And so this is why a lot of people do a lot of crazy things. You might hear of some churches or churches, they pick up deadly snakes, you know, actually deadly snakes thinking they won't die and they get bit and they die and they drink poison and they die. That's why people do a lot of cuckoo things because they think Mark 16 is in the Bible and it's not. And I'll tell you why in just a moment. And so in verse 19, so Lord Jesus spoke to them. He was taking them to heaven, sat down on the right hand of God. It doesn't really match what happens in Acts and Luke where Jesus was ascended. He took his disciples into the Galilee. So this is the mission. The helper is going to come and then he's ascended into heaven. And they went out to preach everywhere while the Lord was with them and confirming the message by accompanying signs. So I hope you see what's odd. The disciples for the first time look kind of paused. Yeah, sure, they were wept and rebuked, but they reacted right. That's not what Mark was really showing the entire time. When you're reading in English, and especially when you're reading the Greek, the, the language shift is so dramatic. You're almost looking at, your, you're talking to a new person. It's like getting a text from your friend but you're reading the words going, this might be from my friend's phone number, but this is not my friend. This is probably someone trying to pull a prank on me using my friend's phone. So the the point is this, and that's why we're, we're going a little long, because a lot of people might be kind of, might shake you right now. That I'm saying, hey, there's something in your Bible that shouldn't be in there. And, and it shouldn't. A lot of Mark 16 does happen in the Bible. And the reason why we believe very strongly that it's not the ending, the true ending of Mark. It's sure the Greek language kind of shows that uh, the, all the words in verses 9 to 12, or 9 to 20, excuse me, most of those words, Mark one, chapter 1 to 16, 8 doesn't use. So it's a whole like different language. So first off, grammatic clues kind of reveal to us, this is probably not Mark. The biggest thing is, it's just not in the earliest manuscripts. And that's actually the beauty of it is that we have early manuscripts to show how authentic the Bible really is. 
And so we have, um, you know, over 5,000, more than that now, 5,000 parchments and manuscripts in the New Testament that we can compare and see how, what were the original words written down on the original pieces of parchment uh, or animal skins back when the writers were writing them through the Holy Spirit. And now we have earlier ones. If the early ones don't have them, we get closer and closer to the autograph. And so when the earlier things don't have these verses, um, we say, actually, it's probably not in there. Now, the two, um, the two really early manuscripts that are really uh, important to know, the Codex, the Codex Sinaiticus and the Codex Vaticanus, those are books. Codex just means a book. Usually it's written in a scroll, but they begin to use, you know, this is called a codex, the way that's a binding. The Codex uh, Sinaiticus and Vaticus, they don't have the gospel, the ending of Mark. They have, both of these, or the earliest things that we have of Mark, the ending of Mark, both end at verse 8. And actually, it seems like the authors knew about this extra ending and said, no, 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 no. This is where 8 ends. We know about this controversy. We know what's going on. It ends at verse 8. And because the earliest manuscripts end at verse 8, that's where we end the Bible. And so when someone tries to say to pick up a serpent and say, hey, you might think that's in the Bible, but it really is not. But if you have more questions about this, this is the realm of textual criticism. This is a, a fine, um, uh, you can say, a scientific exercise that people, these scholars, dig in deep. Talk to Pastor Hayden and myself. We have a handful of resources that would be very helpful for you to, to, you know, to dip your feet in or to really learn more about the ending of Mark. And also to give you a clue, a big section of John chapter 8, maybe a woman caught in an adultery is also not in the Bible. We'll get there. But this should not shake your confidence of the Word of God. Actually, it should strengthen it. And because why? Because we are very transparent to say, hey, earliest manuscripts, they don't have it. It's not in there. We, only, we, we are transparent to say this is what the Word of God actually says. And what most likely happened, a scholar, a scribe that was copying it, probably didn't like the ending, so he probably added things that he knew happened. That's what probably happened. So let's be confident. We need to be confident what, what was you know, given to us because we have the extraordinary amount of evidence, 5,000 of the, just the New Testament to show this is what's written in the Word of God. And we're actually able to show, no, that was actually added and not later. And that should bring us confidence to go, when someone tries to add anything to the Bible, we know. And so that's a good thing. Well, Compass, thank you so much for joining us on this journey as we completed the Gospel of Mark. And next week, Pastor Hayden and I will do begin the Gospel of Luke together. So Compass, continue to read God's Word together uh, as a church family and for God to use that to conform us into His Son's perfect image. Thank you for joining us, Compass. See you next week.